Welcome to Voices from the Frontlines. This is Tuesday, February 16th at 3 p.m. As I speak, the Los Angeles Unified School District Board is voting on a very exciting proposal initiated by a coalition that the Strategy Center is very active in. Terrific leadership from Students Deserve Brothers on Selves, Inner City Struggle, Community Coalition, Reclaim LA Schools, Social Justice Learning Institute, and others who are working, you know, lately feels like 24-7 for the last two or three weeks or months to go from what we call cops to counselors. We were saying for 20 years, we want counselors, not cops. Well, last June, we cut... million out of the Los Angeles School Police Department budget, which is amazing. And now, Superintendent Buettner has done a really good job in outlining exactly where the cuts are going to be. And those cuts are happening, including laying off people. But there are two proposals going on tomorrow, and we hope eventually they're going to become one. One is coming from the superintendent. And Jenny Martinez is going to explain that. And then the other is coming from the Black Futures Coalition, which has four major amendments to the superintendent's motion that we need to pass. If those do not pass, then we're going to urge the board to vote no on the motion and to vote yes on our four amendments. So I'm happy to talk to Jenny Martinez, who is emerging as one of the leaders of the coalition and is now the point person for the strategy center in this coalition. So, hey, Channing, how's it being directive organizing? Hey, glad to be on. And it is a little exhausting, but it's also empowering. <laughs> yeah, pretty cool. Why don't you lay out, because imagine that we're going to put the two motions together. So why don't you lay out first, what are the elements of the superintendent's proposal that we, that both sides have come to agree on? Why don't you start there and then we'll get to what the significant argument is about. But spoiler alert, the biggest argument is about whether or not the civil rights group are going to have any power in this 
or whether or not we're going to be pushed out. And spoiler alert, we will not be pushed out. So with that, Channing, why don't you walk us through what's going on? Sure. So the first thing that I think should be obvious, but may not be, is that we both agree that the $25 million cut from the LA school police should go towards Black student achievement. And we both also agree on the definition of Black student achievement, which includes, you know, academic performance, but also socio-emotional awareness, management, and a positive cultural identity for Black students. And then there are specific numbers in the superintendent's budget that we agree with. So for example, they're going to spend $4.4 million on curriculum instruction. They're going to spend $2.4 million on professional development, another $2 million on school curriculum grants to actually buy materials to support the new curriculum, right? You know, they're going to spend $30 million overall on school climate and wellness, which will include $7.9 million on psychiatric social workers, $7.6 million on counselors, $2.9 million on school climate coaches. That's a new position, which I'll tell you about later. $6.5 million on restorative justice advisors and $5.2 million to be used for flexible climate grants. And then another $2 million to partner with community partners who are already working with Black students to uh, you know, encourage Black student achievement. So it's a big thing because one of the things that we were talking about is we don't want $25 million to act like that's the solution. That is just such a small down payment. And we were already saying we wanted the school board to go into its broader budget and again, to give Superintendent Butner credit, he has come up with $12.1 million of new money on top of the $25 million. So the total amount is $37.1 million, which is terrific. So that's all the unity, right? We'll get back to the content in a minute. So now let's talk about what the struggle and what's critical that we have to get out of there today. There are three things. You know, the first thing is that there is an opt-in option in the superintendent's plan. And we've pushed and we've pushed and we've pushed. And the most that they've moved is that they've made a sort of complicated process to opt back into policing. But as I'm telling a lot of people, the police have had four and 500 years to justify their presence. So simply having a process for me doesn't do it because they're going to get back in. And the superintendent has the ultimate say. And given that he is putting it in, meaning circumventing the original victory, he wants them in. So everyone that's going to request it, he's going to say yes, right? So what's our alternative language? Our alternative is that no school will have the ability to opt back into having a police stationed on campus. So to just walk you through how it works, Kelly Gonez, who's the chair of the board and who's carrying our motion, as we understand it, is going to say to the superintendent, I'm not accepting your language, giving schools the option to so-called opt-in. I'm striking that out. And I'm putting in a different language that says, as Channing said, we already have language that said no school can have police on the campus, the end. So that's, you get it, folks, a big vote that is coming up today. Number two, 
in the superintendent's plan, he outlines a committee for, you know, what does he call it? Climate and Black Student Achievement Oversight Committee. We also have that same committee. The difference is that the superintendent says students, parents, teachers, community groups, and appointed by the superintendent. That leaves it open, in my opinion, for a lot of interpretation. There's already a big movement that's trying to organize for police. And I can foresee them trying to get onto that committee and flipping everything back towards before the summer, right? Our solution is to name the exact groups that have been working for the last 20 years to dismantle the school to prison pipeline, including us, the Labor Community Strategy Center, Students Deserve, Community Coalition, Inner City Struggle, UTLA, SEIU, and Social Justice Learning Institute. Furthermore, we specify that this committee would meet multiple times a month and would have advisory voting power. Now, you might think that that's not enough, but we've, we've seen a lot of experimentation with advisory committees, and you know, we have not been on a committee thus far, and look what we've done, right? And so if you give us a committee, we'll take it. <laughs> we will do something with it. This advisory committee reports to the board. It's a big thing. Now, when the Strategy Center and Industry Struggle and COCO and Students Deserve give advice and UTLA and the SEO give advice, as you said, we know how to take an advisory committee and make it into a big thing. In December, the superintendent had to opt in. As of right now, we have a feeling that that opt-in will not pass. There are four votes to defeat that opt-in. So in the same way, if a school decides that they're going to say, no, I'm not going to do any psychiatric social workers, I'm going to try to figure out some way to disadvantage Black students more, the fact that we will be reporting to LAUSD means that like their labor partners, we get unlimited time to speak at the board and direct access to the board members. And uh, that's a lot of power. It's even more than the two-minute public comments that we have, right? And so that's a lot of power to pressure the board to tell them, this is what's going on. These are our recommendations, and we're going to fight like hell to make sure it doesn't happen. That's great. And let me add something that, to me, the great thing is it gives us the power of organizing to go into the schools and to assume the best to say, look, I want to talk to all the psychiatric social workers. The psychiatric social workers may say, they're not giving us the power that we thought. They're not giving us the time to talk to the Black students. They're not giving us the resources. They're not hiring the people in time. They're not filling the positions. It pushes us into a level of governance and not for the whole world, but for let's say the high schools at which we're working. So some people will be at Dorsey, we'll be at Hawkins, we'll be at, you know, other schools. And we'll be, each of us will be going into the field and coming out and saying, no, the program isn't working. We need more of this. We need less of that. So it puts responsibility on us too, in the very best sense of the word. So I'm super excited about it. And 
it's going to involve more work and getting more organizers. And I think the students are going to get excited that black students are going to have a chance to evaluate their own program. And we're going to help them have the tools to do so. You're making some good points. What's the third thing that we really have to do? The third and the last point is that and it is a moment of introspection on my part and introspection on many of our parts. But, you know, the third piece is the community schools model. And the reason why it's an introspection is I've heard a lot of good things. I do not know the model off the hand. I know that it is a different model from LUSD in which the school partners with community organizations and speaks to in the same way that strategy and soul is trying to speak to the entire human being, right? Uh, the totality of urban life, right? I don't know very many details about it, but I know enough to know that we need to get that into the proposal and make it happen, right? Especially for schools like Hawkins, Crenshaw, Dorsey, all the schools that have the highest black concentration. The superintendent has removed that from the proposal. And we are calling for five to 10 new schools inside the proposal, which have the highest black population to be automatically granted that status. Well, to sum up folks, here's how I see it. What was the word you said, introspective? I mean, I think we both are. We all are. You know, the Strategy Center does not think we're doing great. We try to do great, but we're always aware of what we're not. Certainly compared to the horrors that are being inflicted on black children and parents. But this is very hopeful. First of all, even on negotiations with board member George McKenna, who historically, we've been on the opposite side of virtually every police fight, every discipline fight. But now we're focusing on the issue of moving money to black schools. And on that, we have a lot more unity with Mr. McKenna. So you can see the, the goal of changing alliances and to realize somebody who you think you're in antagonism to on point A, you move to point B, and to your shock is a different set of relationships. The second is we're learning. We're just learning a lot about how the school system works. But let me say this, that all over the country, people say defund the police. But very frankly, we, and I mean we, meaning Black Lives Matter, Students Deserve, we keep repeating all the groups, and Strategy Center, won the largest defunding of any police department by percentage that we know of in the United States. Second, everybody's been saying council's not cops. And now we're moving, hopefully, what we thought was $25 million or maybe $37 million into programs around black students. And as Channing said, this is not, in my opinion, gonna address the crisis of the system's ability to train as opposed to mistrain black children. It's not going to get to the instructional crisis of colonial education, but it's at least going to get counselors in there to create an alternate block to the police so we can move for $100 million or $200 million in instructional money and a lot more theory, again, on how do Black children learn and how does the system deny Black children their innate capacity to learn. So we're just scratching the surface on this, but that's why it's being opposed. That's why, let's be very clear, Superintendent Butner is saying a lot of good things about money, but he's saying, I do not want to give any even influence 
to the civil rights and black movement to shape the policies of an anti-black school system. And that's not gonna be successful and that's not gonna be acceptable. That's what the fight's about. And we'll let you know. I got one more question. You know, Channing, you, if I can say in some way, you know, like they used to say, King was a reluctant revolutionary. You know, he wasn't dying to be one, but he became one, you know, he became one. I think in some way you're a reluctant leader in the sense of, you know, you're a great leader inside the strategy center always, but now to become on a larger stage, which you are, what's it like? What are you going through? What's happening with you? Because everybody knows, to be clear, you're doing a very fine job and now you're the lead representative in all these coalitions. What's going on with you? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it's a moment of very large growth. I'll say that. I'm learning a lot every day. I'm reading a lot more, partially because I'm sort of like, oh, I don't know what in the world they're talking about. Maybe I just go look it up and read about it. You know, a few weeks ago, I was uh, in the coalition and they started talking about strategy and I realized, God, I thought I knew something about strategy. And then I went and read playbook and realized, no, I did not know anything about strategy. And there's this great, you know, short, compact definition of strategy, campaign strategy. And I learned a lot from that. And so, so I'm learning a lot about, you know, what it means to organize on a whole different level, which is big. You know, the other thing is when I ran for the planning committee of the bus riders union, I gave a talk because you have to give a talk in order to get elected, <laughs> um, appreciating the work of Eric Mann, Manuel Criollo and Ashley Franklin. I was saying that Eric, you know, while I'm trying to organize the, the kid on the block, Eric's trying to organize the entire school board. And I'm not on that level yet. And I so much appreciate seeing them being able to move and influence the school board. And, you know, if nothing else, I'm moving to that level where I'm realizing that organizing is a conversation. And, you know, just like transformative organizing, I get influenced and I'm trying to influence others, right? So I'm trying to influence Monica Garcia and Kelly Gomez. And I'm being influenced by them as well and learning a lot more about the internal workings and internal politics and operations of LUSD. You've read Playbook more than most people I know, and you think you understand it, but now you're in charge. So now you go, whoop, I better go back and read it because I thought I understood it. But now that I'm in charge, I really better understand it. And that's when the mind, you know, I mean, it's different when you're in charge the brain expands, it forces you to expand. Absolutely. Because the possibility of failure is greater. That's right, yeah, that's right, yeah. I so, agree with that. And you know, I think the other thing to affirm is just like you say, time, place, and conditions. So you know, the example of that is I read Invisible Man in high school. Time, place, and conditions, I'm a, I'm a black boy in a very racist, you know, school system. I just read it a few years ago, again, after having left LAUSD and gone to college and done all these things. And I learned so much more after having actually went through the experience and Invisible Man became sort of a reflection of like, oh, you just went through a lot of this experience and here's a whole nother meditation on 
how do you understand the system from that point of view? So I feel like it's the same thing again. I'm reading Playbook sort of as a reflection of both my growing up as an organizer, but also really understanding a whole new level of like, I don't know, realms of organizing <laughs> per se. Well, that was the voice of a man in positive transition. This is Eric Mann, the host of Voices from the Frontlines, interviewing or having a conversation with Channing Martinez, the co-host of Voices from the Frontlines, the producer of it, and the director of organizing of the Strategy Center. There's no question that one of the great victories of this movement is all the relationships we're building with other people in the city and our own personal growth as well. We're going to take a break, and I'm going to be back with my review of Judas and the Black Messiah. Messiah is just a terrific political film. In many ways, I think it's flawless in, in terms of its basic structure. Let's start with the Black Messiah. That's Fred Hampton, the leader of the Chicago Black Panther Party, who was killed by the Chicago police in direct alliance with the FBI on December 4th, 1969. December 4th is my birthday, but more importantly, I was actually at Fred Hampton's funeral on December 4th or December 5th in a massive church in Black Chicago that I'll tell you about. The Judas is a man named William O'Neill, who was a police informer paid for by the FBI, who infiltrated the Black Panther Party who gave the FBI a direct map of Fred Hampton's apartment so they would know how to shoot him, and then who drugged Fred Hampton so he'd be asleep in his bed, so he would be essentially assassinated while he was asleep. Fred Hampton is played by Daniel Kaluuya, and William O'Neill is played by Lakeith Stanfield. The slimy FBI agent Roy Mitchell is played by Jesse Plemons. And the dynamic Deborah Johnson, who you'll learn about, is played by Dominique Fishback. And I think I told you that the entire production was driven by Shaka King, who I'd like to learn more about in a future article, and written by Will Benson and Shaka King. So I'm going to read you some stuff, and then I'm going to try to improvise off it. Judas and the Black Messiah is an important and excellent film because it frames the question with great political clarity. Fred Hampton was a brilliant organizer. As the Panthers evolved their theory, he continued to focus on armed self-defense. This is in Chicago in 1968 and 69. But as many others, although Fred was the best, moved to community organizing in the most revolutionary version of it. 
Fred was a brilliant leader of women and men, and yes, played by Daniel Kaluuya with brilliant inhabitation of Fred, a unique revolutionary of such charismatic embodiment of the revolution. Combined with the great people skills to bring Latinos to the young lords, poor white Appalachians from the young patriots into the great rainbow coalition of Chicago in 1968-69, years before Jesse Jackson learned from but also appropriated for his own 1984 and 1988 presidential runs. Also the great Harold Washington, who was elected mayor of Chicago, was a direct product of the amazing work that Fred Hampton did to precede him. Now Fred Hampton was murdered with the Chicago police with direct partnership with the FBI, whose master agent, Roy Mitchell, is played with disgusting convincingness by Jesse Plemons. As always, this could not be possible without an informer, a spy, a traitor, a Judas in the ranks. And the story explains how the FBI got William O'Neill, played with chilling ambivalence and resolve by Lakeith Stanfield to be the Judas to bring down the Black Messiah. Again, contrary to stereotypes, there were many strong women in the Black Panthers and Dominique Fishback is so compelling as Deborah Johnson, who both mentored and was mentored by Fred, Carrie, his son, Fred Jr., and came within an inch of being killed herself on the police massacre that night. Now, there are many minor, wish there had been more of this and more of that or less of this, observations about this fine film. The only one I'll venture is I wish the scenes of Fred building support with the young lords and the young patriots showed the level of quiet negotiation and complex discussion of strategy and tactics that I know went on to build those alliances. But the brilliance of the film is the clarity of its politics at a time when many young black students and community members and actually people of all ages have been denied so much of the revolutionary history that was made in their, or at least in our lifetimes as well as, of course, Latinos, Latinas, Puerto Ricans, whites. So the core political messages were made very clear. First, the Black Panthers were great, period. They ran Breakfast for Children's program. They worked well in the Black community. They were part of the Black United Front. And yes, they were the bravest and most committed members. And the only force that believed the Black community should and would stand up to the pigs. Second, the scenes of unmitigated police terror were terrifyingly brilliant. No one can grasp what it's like to just see armed thugs walking the street who like the Klan and the white mobs can do whatever they want to any black man, woman or child walking down the street. They can kick your door in, shoot to kill, beat the hell out of people and they face no opposition today. To imagine the unbelievable, as an unbelievable courage of the Panthers to arm themselves, to confront the police, to ask them to stop police brutality, to risk their lives daily is beyond what I and I think you can truly comprehend until the Panthers come back again. Now, Fred Hampton Jr., who was in his mother's womb at the time that Fred Sr. was killed, never saw his dad, is now the director of the Prisoners of Conscience Committee 
and the Black Panther Party Cubs. Deborah Johnson, a Kuhn Jerry, is chair of the December 4th committee that continues to tell the story of the Chicago police FBI raid. Now, let me go back and elaborate. The first thing is that I am absolutely appalled at how much unity there is on so many forces to slander the Black Panther Party. Caricature it. There are feminists who say it was masculinist. I don't even know what that means. They were Black men fighting against castration, fighting against uh, being shot. They were Black men standing up for their Black manhood. Why would that be called masculinist as if it was against women? Secondly, the Black Panther Party, in my opinion, was a complex group of human beings, but I know for a fact many women in the Panthers said it was a very strong, positive experience for them, that their leadership was developed. And as uh, Elaine Brown once said, well, if you want to criticize the Panthers for this and that, these were the brothers off the block. We didn't get some ideal people. We got the real people. And we worked with the real people on the block and made them into better people. Why are you comparing the Panthers to what? Why you compare Martin Luther King to what? Or Malcolm? Why is everybody not something? Why don't you understand that all of them were better than anything we've ever seen? And I would say better than any of us have become since then. So that's the first thing that the film conveys great. And again, Daniel Kaluuya does a great job. I believe he put on weight for the part, but he, he is Fred Hampton. It's pretty great. You know, the great actors sort of inhabit a person. I did think Jamie Foxx's Ray did that. I really think Jamie Foxx became Ray Charles for a while. And I think Daniel became Fred Hampton. He understood him. You, you can feel him understanding it. Now, there's a whole beautiful scene where he keeps saying, I am a revolutionary. I am a revolutionary. Repeat after me, I am a revolutionary. And there's a great line in Stanley Nelson's film on the Black Panthers, which has a lot of, in my opinion, not very good conclusions, even though it's got some terrific footage. And in that film, there's a white lawyer Gerald Lefcourt, who was a great civil rights lawyer. And he tells the story that I'm at a meeting with Fred Hampton and he's yelling, I am a revolutionary. And I'm going, everybody's yelling, I can't do that. Then he goes, I am a revolutionary. And I'm saying, I can't do that. But a third or fourth time, I find my fist going up in the air and saying, damn, I am a revolutionary. That's what Fred Hampton can do. He was able to touch the souls of people and bring out that revolutionary is a normal thing to be in a racist, reactionary, imperialist country. That's what you gotta be. The great civil rights lawyer, Gerald Lefcourt, who defended the Panther 21 in New York, and also great memories to my friend, Hank DeSouvero, the late Hank DeSouvero who defended the Panthers. So, I was a revolutionary at the time. I was in, in the Weatherman Collective in Boston. Another clarification, Weatherman was an above ground, later became the Weather People. There is also the Weather Underground. I was not in the Weather Underground. 
It's not right or wrong. I just wasn't, did not agree with the tactic. But I joined Weatherman in the uh, basically August of 1969. And I was very convinced by Bill Ayers and Bernadine Dorn and others that we had to really build a movement in support of the Panthers, in support of the people in Vietnam. And it was time to, you could say, up the game. And that a lot of above ground militancy would be necessary even we would say to open up a second and third front so the police would have to attack us, not just attack the Panthers. I was very convinced by that. And I went back and they asked me and a young woman who no longer wants to identify with that choice she made. Uh, and we went and we started the Boston Weather People Collective and I was the co-chair. And when she left, I was the chair. So we said, let's organize some demonstrations. What can we do? And to give me a lot of credit, actually, the weather people in Boston carried out, I think, a really brilliant tactic, which is we attacked the Harvard Center for International Affairs. Now, I had just been at the Columbia strike in April, May, June of 1968. And we attacked the Institute for Defense Analyses at Columbia. And what we exposed was that Columbia and all these universities were part of the CIA. They were part of the FBI. They were part of the Defense Department. They were getting explicit contracts to do military weapons studies or counterinsurgency studies, meaning how can we kill the people of Vietnam, murder the Viet Cong, because that's was the strategy, murder the people of Vietnam to terrorize them into giving up communism, which failed. So when I joined the Weatherman Collective and our group was thinking, what could we do? We said, why don't we have a demonstration against the Harvard Center for International Affairs that uh, Henry Kissinger was uh, in charge of, and yes, they were absolutely planning counterinsurgency against the people of Vietnam. So I think in retrospect, we should have first organized very large demonstrations against the Harvard Center. We should have done more political education against the Harvard Center for International Affairs. But we had a different theory that said, well, the best way to get people to know about it is do something so outrageous that everybody's gonna be talking about it. So 25 of us in broad daylight walked into the Harvard Center for International Affairs, spray painted death to US imperialism. The NOF is gonna win. You're a bunch of racist corporate war criminals. We broke the windows, smashed furniture, screamed and yelled, knocked over desks. We ran up and down the stairs and yeah, we scared the hell out of them. We did. And then we left. Now it turns up on the second floor, one of our people who remained nameless got into a fist fight with a guy named Ben Brown. They both punched each other. One of our people punched Ben Brown and he, he, had, uh, he needed seven stitches in his face. So after the demonstration, they went after about five of us. Wasn't hard to find us because I was at the time very well known. I had been the head of SDS, the leading organizer of SDS in Boston. And I didn't wear a mask and we marched in and the police came 
arrested me and they charged me with, and there's another thing that certainly black folks could understand. You know, when they say throw the book at you, it means they just make up stuff. So defacing a school, defacing property, uh, blah, 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 and assault and battery. Now, the assault and battery, it's not the worst thing if we did it. It turns out I didn't. So now I'm placed in a very difficult situation, which I don't like saying I didn't because one of our people did. And I don't like saying I was innocent. So I'm more just trying to say it was a politically motivated action and it wasn't the worst thing in the world, but it was going against Harvard. So I go to court and I defend myself. And if you asked me when I started this demonstration, what do you think is gonna happen to you? I'll be honest, I didn't even think about it. Like, I don't know. I mean, we're gonna break the windows and that's what they deserve. And we had broken a lot of windows before, but I should have known, Eric, this is the Harvard Center for International Affairs. You're going up against the actual CIA. You're going up against Henry Kissinger's house. What do you think is going to happen to you? But that was not on my mind. If you asked me, I don't know. Okay, I guess I'll do a month in jail or something like that. So I went to court and they sentenced me to one year in prison. And everybody was absolutely shocked. Nobody had ever gotten such a sentence. And I was approached by a very well-known attorney who said, this is absolutely ridiculous. Under Massachusetts law, you can appeal the case. And you can't get any more time under Massachusetts law if you appeal the case, even though you have a new trial. The worst you're going to get is one year. And... I think you're going to get less or acquitted. I said, that's great. I said, let's appeal. So I'm out on bail. And the Boston Weatherman Cambridge Collective is starting to fall apart. We have already been charged with about six or seven different things. We're in and out of court. We were charged with attempted murder. A lot of things. Thank God we beat. And I think even in three months, if you can imagine, I joined in September of 69. And I think September 25th is the demonstration. Somehow by October, I'm already sentenced to one year in prison. So I joined this thing in two months and I already got one year in jail. So while I'm waiting for my appeal, the national office of SDS was in Chicago. And that became the weatherman, weather people headquarters. They said, we're planning this big demonstration in Flint, like a war council, to figure out where we're going to go next. Would you come out and live in Chicago and help us plan this demonstration in Flint, Michigan? I said, sure. I mean, I'm sort of part of a national organization. I do what I'm told and it sounded good. I come to Chicago. It's cold as, I mean, you know, when they say, Lou Rawls said the hawk about that wind. He wasn't kidding. That was the most freezing place I've ever been. I had this big uh, Air Force parka I got that had big sides so that the wind couldn't hit you in the face. In return, you couldn't see anything when you crossed the street. But it was a really good experience. And then we started working with the Panthers. And then I'm not there more than two weeks when Fred Hampton's killed and I'm there.
and we go to Fred Hampton's funeral and we're in a black church. There must have been 2,000 people there. And people were angry at a level I never saw. And there was this guy from Malcolm X University who got up and said, number one, we got to learn how to use our guns. And number two, damn it, black folks have to learn to shoot straight because the police cannot be allowed to get away with this. We need armed struggle against the police. And he's saying that from the podium. Those were the times, those were the times when thousands of people are saying yes. Now I'm saying this into the microphone. My understanding, I may be wrong, is that Bobby Rush from the Panthers, who was in the film and now a member of Congress was charged with something by the police. And Jesse Jackson somehow brought him back into the police at our instruction. Uh, I mean, I, he didn't do anything wrong. It was to try to prevent Bobby Rush from being killed. So Jesse Jackson already was well known enough. So everybody's yelling, where's Jesse? Where's Jesse? And the implication is how come Jesse is Jesse hiding out? Other people don't know, but I got to get the facts right. But I'm, I'm talking what I heard is some people said Jesse is trying to help Bobby Rush come back in. Parenthesis, that's what happened with me. Uh, I'm not the same. But when I was out and the police were looking for me, my attorneys scheduled to turn me over to the police at a church. And I went to that church and I gave a speech against the police and against imperialism. And again, and, and said that I take responsibility for my actions at the Harvard Center for the International Affairs because they're a bunch of war criminals. And then they turned me over to the police. Again, the thinking being, Eric, do not be out in the street because the police could shoot you, you know, because there's now a warrant out for you. So what I'm saying is being delivered to the police is not a sellout. And Jesse did a good thing, as I understand it, to help Bobby Rush not get killed by the police because there was a warrant out for him. This is Eric Mann. You're on Voices from the Front Lines, your national movement building show. I'm talking to my friend, Channing Martinez. You're on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 98.7 FM in Santa Barbara, streaming live on the web at kpfk.org. Oh yeah, this is a fundraiser, folks. I hope in the middle of such a long, and it is a monologue uh, about the great Fred Hampton, you would understand the significance of the great KPFK, that we desperately need you to give money to the station. To just be able to talk like that, and I am telling you some pretty specific things about my life and taking some risks, is because I want certain revolutionary history to get out to you, the listener. I think it's hard to listen to a station and keep having fun drives, but I do analogize it to the church. Everybody comes every Sunday and knows they're gonna pass the collection plate and every Sunday you're gonna give. I know that in the black community way back 
people used to have to pay for burial insurance. And if you can imagine that in the 20s, there would be people that would come once a week to collect your dollar or your 50 cents, whatever you would agree to. So I think we just have to accept we love KPFK, we listen to it, and yeah, every fund drive we give something. Now, I am offering my book, which Danny talked about in his conversation, Playbook for Progressives, The 16 Qualities of Successful Organizer. And I'm happy to say I'm influencing Jenny Martinez as a very successful organizer. If you're interested, it will take a contribution of $100 or more. And if you give $100 or more to KPFK, just say I would like Eric Mann's book, Playbook for Progressives, and they're going to send it out to you. And by the way, the Strategy Center contributes it to KPFK with no charge whatsoever. So we contribute to KPFK. We buy the book. Then we give it free to KPFK. So you can give $100 and get the book. So I'm back at the funeral. And there's several things I remember thinking. One, the Black Messiah. And I want to talk to you about that. That's a big theme. I believe there's a Black nation, and I believe a Black nation needs a series of messiahs. I believe oppressed people need a messiah. I know that you've been told that's not true. I know you've been told, well, we don't like leaders. We all are the same, and it's horizontalism. And the only kind of horizontalism that'll get you is being dead, you know, just laying dead on the floor horizontally. Because all people, all oppressed people have tremendous differences. So if you look at Black people as, which I believe are a nation, the system goes out of its way, first of all, to divide all the Black people, to make them think, oh, you're not a nation. As soon as they came, they, they broke the family. They wouldn't let you speak a native language. They forced you to speak stupid English. And they consciously did everything to break the spirit and break the soul and to prevent any common identity of Black people. Imagine within one generation, you were not allowed to use your language. You couldn't read castration and rape as a permanent part of an economic system that, in my opinion, was only secondarily economic. It reached the point where, yes, it was economic, but that level of barbarism was not needed. You could have had decent peonage. You could have had Black people just getting a little bit of money. That is not true. It was the cruelty and the sickness of the white settler state that forced slavery to be such a brutal system. So through a miracle, Black people who now have different skin shades, Black people who are somewhat product even of the rape of the white plantation owner, Black people who speak different languages, different cultures, somehow all think they're Black no matter what has been done, they understand that they're Black. So when, when James Brown said, say it loud, I'm Black and I'm proud, 
You could do a survey of how many black people said, uh-uh, I ain't black and I ain't proud. I think very few. I think when Nina Simone sings to young people to be young, gifted, and black, if you're young and gifted and black, I think you say that song is for me. So I was there. I saw the black nation in that church. I saw people who believed in nonviolence to say, we must support the Panthers. We must support some armed. What do we do? These police are trying to murder us. And in one of the reviews, it said that, you know, Dr. King was killed on April 4th, 1968. Fred was killed on December 4th, 1969, 20 months difference to the day. They killed Malcolm. They beat Fannie Lou Hamer within an inch of her life. They killed Fred Hampton. They killed Dr. King. Revolutions need leaders. Organizations need great leaders. And the murder of Fred Hampton was a successful tactic by the system in the great counter-revolution of which we're a part. There is a point where Fred said, you can kill a revolutionary, but you can't kill the revolution. And I'll tell you that I'd like that to be true, but it's not. If you kill enough revolutionaries, you can set back a revolution. It took the Vietnamese, it took the communists to take Fred's idea and to make it into such a great structure that the United States did kill many revolutionaries but could not kill the revolution. My conclusion is the Black Panther Party was amazing. The Young Lords Party was amazing. The Brown Berets, the Young Patriots. And we have to look to that, not to imitate it, but to emulate it, to understand that what Fred was saying is totally relevant today. And I think the film is great. Let me end with a couple of thoughts about the film. I think the role of Deborah Johnson in there is terrific. There's some line I forget. She says something like, you're a good speaker, but you're not well prepared enough. You kind of hustle, you're kind of moving through, you're too dogmatic, you're not, you're not prepared enough. And the fact that he listens to her and that she's his mentor and he's her mentor, it's very beautiful how they affect each other and impact each other. Then he goes to jail, and I want to look into that. He goes to jail for stealing ice cream, which he didn't do or did do. Who cares? $70 worth of ice cream, allegedly. And he's in prison for two years. On a legal challenge, he gets out. And he's about to go back in for three more years. There's a scene where the police informant, William O'Neill, wearing a wire, opens up the trunk and shows massive explosives and says to Fred Hampton, talking all militant, well, you said yourself that the more pigs you kill, the better we are. The only way you're gonna have full liberation is to kill all the pigs. So here's a plan to kill the pigs. And he's got this tape on. And Fred Hampton says, I'm trying to build a community center. I'm trying to build a health clinic. 
I'm not trying to blow up the system. I'm trying to defeat the system. And I'm trying to out-organize the system, put that crap away. And then he has to take off the wire later, throw it away because he couldn't get what he wanted. So Fred Hampton was a great strategist and it shows that in the film. It shows the complexity of a relationship between a man and a woman. It shows that armed struggle is primarily armed self-defense. Occasionally it can be armed offense, but it's the Panthers were not about blowing stuff up. I'll just end by saying that the thing about the film that's so great is it says Fred Hampton was great. The black community is great. The Chicago police are very bad. The FBI is very bad. Fred Hampton is great. Become a revolutionary. Do not become a spy. If you're a spy, you are a Judas. And we need a black messiah. And Fred Hampton was one. That's people who are clear, who do not muddy the water. That's what the film says. That's the truth. And big props to Shaka King and the team to put together such an amazing film. I urge you to see it. And I urge you to give money to KPFK, 818-985-5735, 818-985-5735. Give to support Voices from the Frontlines. Give to support the terrific organizing Channing and Joseph Williams and so many others are doing to get $36 million to black students and do it to support KPFK 90.7 FM. Please check us out. Please check us out on Spotify, on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and as always on VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. And as we always say, we want your response. We want to hear from you. Eric just laid out a great piece on a really great film. I thought it was fantastic as well. So send your responses to Eric at VoicesFromTheFrontlines.com. And that means a lot. Thanks, everybody. All power to the people. We're going to have a great show next Tuesday, and we're going to tell you all about this amazing victory that we're going to win today. Little darling, the smile will return into the faces now. Little darling, it seems like years since you've been here. Little darling, it's been a long See you.